Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Hello, and welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. I found a long time ago that not only can I help pediatric patients and families by working in my office, but I can also do it through advocacy and education. I have the wonderful opportunity to work with the Ohio chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and specifically was able to interview two very special guests due to a project through the Ohio AAP and the Center for Disease Control called Project First Line. So please listen as there are two parts to this podcast, one and two, and we're going to have heart-to-heart talk with an infectious disease specialist as well as a general pediatrician just like myself as we are on the first line trying to do our best to control infection. Now, this podcast is particularly geared towards pediatric healthcare providers, but I think that you will all find the information also very helpful. Welcome to episode one of two of the podcast series, Germs Are Everywhere, Stop Them Before They Spread. This educational podcast series is brought to you by the Ohio Chapter, American Academy of Pediatrics, and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's Project First Line. CDC's Project First Line provides innovative and accessible resources for all healthcare workers so that we can learn about infection control in healthcare. Also, explore educational and training content to learn more about where germs live in the healthcare setting and how to recognize the risk for them to spread, which is the first step in understanding when to take action to protect our patients and ourselves from infection. Infection control in healthcare is really more about policies and procedures. It's an essential part of caring and protecting patients. When you can understand and apply infection control actions consistently and confidently, every person, every action, every day, it saves lives. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Deepa McCundan and Dr. Ava Johnson. Dr. Deepa McCundan is originally from India. She completed her residency in pediatrics from the Medical College of Ohio, now known as the University of Toledo, College of Medicine. She also finished her fellowship in pediatric infectious diseases and immunology from the University of Michigan. Dr. McKendon is a a consultant for pediatric infectious disease at ProMedica Russell J. Ebide Children's Hospital and Nationwide Children's Hospital. Dr. McKendon is a professor of pediatrics and associate dean of student affairs at UTCOM. She also serves as Interim Vice Chair of Pediatrics and the Chief of the Division of Infectious Disease. Dr. McKendon is board certified in pediatrics, pediatric infectious disease, and is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. 
I'd also like to welcome Dr. Ava Johnson. She's a Cleveland native. She obtained her medical degree from Case Western Reserve University and completed her rainbow her residency at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. Dr. Johnson works in the Division of General Academic Pediatrics at Rainbows and has a special interest in nutrition, pediatric mental health, and health equity. Her current research involves Black fathers' access to health care. Dr. Johnson is an assistant professor of pediatrics at CWRU, and she also serves as a regional medical director for the Rainbow Primary Care Institute, through which she's involved with formulation of Rainbow's outpatient clinical practice guidelines. Dr. Johnson is board certified in pediatrics and is a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics. So I'd like to also welcome myself. I'm Dr. Sarah Adams, and I'm a pediatrician through Akron Children's Hospital here in Hudson, Ohio. I'm really passionate about promoting healthy lifestyles mentally and physically in children and adolescents, and this really led me to start even my own podcast called Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. I love speaking at for surrounded communities, and I currently sit on the um, Ohio AAP's executive committee, as well as the medical director of the Ohio AAP's Parenting at Mealtime and Playtime. Very passionate about improving the way families use media, health and wellness, bullying prevention, and adolescent medicine. And I also am board certified in pediatrics and a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I am so honored today to be talking about the CDC in collaboration with the AAP about Project First Line. And thank you both to Dr. Johnson as well as Dr. McCundin for joining me today. Thank you. So there's so many topics that we can talk about, right? I thought maybe we should start with some local hot topics. What do you guys think? Great. Tell us a little bit about your experience with the recent measles outbreak. I think fortunately, um, I'm practicing in Cleveland and um, Deepa is practicing in Toledo. So fortunately, we were not part of the actual outbreak that was um, in the Columbus area. Um, but I did speak with um, Dane Schneider, who is in charge of their outpatient practices down there and really was a big concern um, how to figure out who's coming to your practice and how do you make sure that you keep the patients in your practice safe and also identify um, kids at risk for measles early on. So I know for there, they had um, special screening processes. They looked at zip codes of the patients and their MMR status to identify who might be at increased risk um, population that they need to do better screening for prior to arrival to the office or at the arrival to the office. Um, but Deepa, I think you can explain more about what we should be looking for when we, um, as an ID specialist, what we should be looking for with kids with measles. You alluded to it perfectly. Uh, it's the exposure risk because many of these viral infections present with rashes, which look similar, but measles is a highly contagious disease and causes a lot of complications, even in normal children and previously healthy children. So, um, Identifying them before they enter the health system or interface with the office would be the first line of defense. So getting to know, triaging them over the phone, finding out what their symptoms are, what the immunization status is, have they been exposed recently to measles would be your first line. And then should these patients come into clinic, 
say you're not able to triage them, they just arrive in your clinic for an acute visit, then you many clinics have identified, again, ask the screening questions and then separate them out into a sick visit, keep the provider mask, uh, keep them isolated. And once the visit, take them to a separate room. Once the visit is completed, then clean the area. Now, um, if many of, I mean, our pandemic has taught us telemedicine. So a lot of these can be managed via telemedicine, which again protects the the community as well as the physicians and uh, instead of bringing them to your clinic. Now, should they get hospitalized? I mean, emergency emergency rooms would be the next uh, line of defense if they are sort of in a place where you do not want them to come to clinic, but at the same time, they're sick enough and need to be seen and maybe even hospitalized, then I would send them directly to the emergency room. But at the same time, call the emergency room and alert them that this is my concern and so that they are prepared for this patient. And once um, they hit the emergency room, the triage and protocols are all in place. Even the hospitals have uh, good protocols for, I mean, these children need airborne isolation and um, for at least four to five days since the rash heals or once the rash appears and uh, is resolving. Now, this outbreak did have a lot of children affected, about 85, and 36 of them were hospitalized. Um, But prevention is the key. None of these children were uh, vaccinated children. So vaccination protects. It's 93% effective at preventing measles, and two doses prevents 97% of these infections. So extremely effective vaccine, highly contagious disease, but this works only if majority of the population or rather nearly 96%, just because of how contagious it is, at least 97% of the population need to be immunized for it to prevent spread. In the US, of course, most of these infections are imported. Um, We have been measles free for quite some time, but Um, there are areas in the world where measles is still transmitted. So even though we have an effective vaccine, we have to be on our guard with the uh, cases being imported. Now, as far as uh, this outbreak, luckily, has been contained. Um, Once uh, the CDC recognized that there has been no transmission or no new cases for 42 days, which is twice the incubation period. Um, the area has been declared as, I mean, the outbreak has been declared as um, contained and done. So again, emphasizing back to our um, infection control uh, protocols, um, it's extremely important to identify them at source, prevent them from um, accessing services where the population can intervene. Now that brings us to the next question, how are clinics dealing with respiratory illnesses? You know, acute respiratory illnesses, especially after COVID, we've seen such a surge. So I've always wondered, because majority of my practice has been in the hospital, which is a controlled environment. I've always had that most respect for those who are out there in the field and dealing with these acute infections uh, directly. 
Well, I think, you know, we are so now used to masking and practices, um, but I think a lot of practices now are thinking of relaxing rules and masks out of the practice um, for every, you know, universal masking. So thinking through how you manage respiratory illnesses in your practice, again, with measles, you know, we, you'd want to make sure you're masking, but we, when you think about any of any infectious illnesses that are spread respiratory droplets, um, how are you going to navigate the next chapter of, of COVID and um, respiratory illnesses in your practice, I think is a, is a good thing to talk through. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I think what's important here is that now that some of the clinics, outpatient clinics, and even our hospitals are no longer requiring the mask mandate, we have to remember that the masks are just one part of infection control, correct? Yes, absolutely. And um, used in the right places at the right time, it works. Um, if not, it is more invasive uh, in terms of, you know, personal space and um, growth and development, especially from a child, for a child. So and I think, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I think in, in our practice, you know, thinking through how we um, tried to minimize respiratory spreads, you know, thinking about we stopped using NEBS um, and really tried to convert to using um, spacers um, and inhalers in our in our practice again, minimizing respiratory um, spread of respiratory droplets. Um, also trying to cohort patients um, in waiting rooms and, and in exam rooms so that we're really minimizing um, again the exposure to from healthy kids and, and sick kids. But um, again, a big thing was um, stopping using neb, nebs treatments in our in our office. That's not practical for every practice, but it. I think it actually has been re worked really well for us, um, either to have a patient bring their inhaler and spacer to clinic, or um, you know, if you have a pharmacy that the patient family could pick up a inhaler and spacer at. Um, again, just thinking through small little changes you can to minimize these respiratory. Right, and again, many practices have rightfully done separating the sick children from the well children, and um, you know negative pressure rooms and cleaning surfaces. We all know that it's not just uh, droplet in many of these viral infections, it is surfaces and formites. So cleaning surfaces between patients and having maybe if you have the luxury of having separate well care versus, um, you know, sick care rooms, that would be ideal. Um, I yeah, just, Vinny, go ahead. No, I was just gonna mention too, even triaging and screening when they come in is so important as well, because many times I know in primary care, they are scheduled for a well child visit, but they have a fever as well. And they're like, oh, well, I was so glad that I had this well visit today because now he has a fever. So, you know, I'd like to address that too. So it's not as it's not assuming that everybody that comes in, even for a well visit, is well, or maybe they're coming in for something else that they're that making sure that we triage and screen so that we can appropriately room them as well. Absolutely. And also another thing is we have become relatively more comfortable using N95s and learning about airborne precautions, which we never used to in the past. Um, and that's a plus. Uh, so we never hesitate to do, use the HEPA filters and, you know, put on an N95 and go into a patient's room. Um, and that 
comfort level has increased, I would say. And um, and that's a plus, I would say, for um, infection control in terms of people wanting to do the right things for the children and their families. And I think also it keeps providers healthier, your staff healthier. Um, so again, it's it's it has you know multiple benefits uh, across um, the clinic um, to um, think about infection control and respiratory infection control, especially. Absolutely, that is such an important point to make that we're not only protecting ourselves, we're protecting our coworkers, our our patients, as we mentioned. That is, and these are all part of the Project First Line. It's to how are we taking care of ourselves so that we can take care of others? Exactly. I mean, I can say that I'm hesitant to give up using my mask because I feel it's my shield of defense um, and not obviously the only shield of defense, but um, because I knock on wood have, have been relatively healthy with wearing a mask at work. But I know everybody has their own personal preference, but uh, but I think, um, you know, for me, it, it's it's when you see a lot of sick kids over the day, it, it does make you feel a little more secure. But have so either, again, thinking through your practice, how, how it's going to work best for you. Yeah, absolutely. Have either of you found it to be difficult to ask patients or parents to, you know, let's say you've triaged them, you've done the screening and you're feeling like they should be masked and now an environment where it's not required. Have, have you seen any barriers to this request? I would say, you know, there were barriers initially when we first started the masking, but um, I, maybe I'm just fortunate to work in a, in a, neighborhood where um, there has been a lot of um, embracing of, of masking. Um, and so I haven't had that experience of a lot of pushback um, recently, but I know that throughout the state of Ohio, there are, you know, different philosophies about this. So I think um, it may really be regional to wh- what you're seeing in, in your practice. I don't know, Deepa, what you, what you've noticed. Um, no, actually the environment I work in, it has been, I mean, people have taken it really well. Um, the only thing which bothers me is when they don't mask properly, mm-hmm. uh, the nose is exposed. And so then I do tell them, you know, you have to cover your nose when you mask and it has to, and I find that when you, you should not take a stand, you just have to be matter of fact, um, you know, this, um, don't have to tell them anything and they immediately do it. I've never gotten any pushback from uh, that perspective. Um, yes, behaviors have uh, have changed, uh, but I think I believe, and I think that most people do want to right think for everybody and for themselves and their children. So, yes, um, people are um, even healthcare workers are very uh, protective of themselves as they and their families, and they have taken to doing what is best for everybody. Uh, rightly. So the next, I would say the other thing would be, I mean, another challenge we've had is vaccination. And um, I don't know, how has it been in your practices? I mean, I, we, we um, are seeing more and more vaccine refusers. um, And, um, but I work in a, in a, urban practice. I don't think it's as high as some other areas in Ohio, but um, we are seeing increasing numbers of vaccine refusers, which is sort of, um, you know, 
unsettling when we know, again, that there was that measles outbreak in Columbus. And you're thinking a lot of parents don't have never seen these illnesses in their lives. And so I think don't appreciate the importance of vaccines. Um, so it's really about keeping reinforcing why these aren't so important. And these illnesses are still out there in the world. Um, you know, talking through Hib and Prevnar or pneumococcal, why those aren't so important. I think I get more buy-in for those with ear infections, pneumonia, you know, meningitis than um, the um, MMR, um, which has a lot more pushback. Right. And in a way, vaccines have shot itself in the foot in the sense they're so effective that you don't see it anymore. <laughs> Even the newer doctors haven't seen what measles looks like and um, what chicken pox looks like. So uh, it definitely, and so it, it's, it's something like it doesn't exist. If I don't see it, it never exists. So bringing that to a conscious level is very difficult. Um, in the sense, this is a very dangerous illness, a lot of complications, and uh, you do need to get a vaccine. But uh, like I said, measles, you know, it's a highly contagious disease. If you're not, if 96% of the population is not vaccinated, it spreads fast and white. And we do have a lot of people who are immunocompromised in our community nowadays. It's transplant, immunosuppression with chemotherapy, um, biologics for Crohn's and other diseases. So when we first introduced the measles vaccine, that population was not that high. But right now, thanks to all of control of all of these infectious diseases, we have a thriving population of whom who are immune compromised. So that's another population we need to protect. So I would, uh, yeah, we we just have to keep at it and uh, with the understanding that everybody will get it at some point. Uh, it Persistence, I would say, is the best way to deal with this. Um, but the, you should also know when to stop talking about it. Because um, uh, there are, I mean, it's essentially interaction with a patient and you should know when and primary care actually primary care physicians have their trust and they do listen a lot to their primary care physicians um, whereas when it comes to us which we are one level away uh, we do need to gauge the uh, you know our relationship with the patient and how much we need to talk about it versus um, how much we need to sort of keep cutting back from pushing it too far because it may not be that productive. Okay. No, I think having a, a good therapeutic relationship with a patient really does go a long way and right. helping convince some parents that are a little hesitant um, that um, maybe they would consider uh, vaccination. I think when you have all out vaccine refusers who have refused for 15 years, I really don't spend as much yeah. time uh, with those going over vaccines with those patients because they have a very consistent uh, refusal pattern, but certainly vaccine hesitant. I think again, um, mm -hmm. continuity and, and the primary care office is a really, really critical piece and, and helping um, to also overcome the disinformation that is out in the internet everywhere um, and making sure that our voice is an important voice and, and powerful voice and, and supporting that real evidence-based um, importance of vaccines. Right. And some are and many offices with the high turnover of staff have found it very challenging to keep these, uh, you know, administration of vaccines on track uh, because you're orienting somebody at the same time. So you need to develop some protocols in place 
where it is standardized so that it doesn't, I mean, we don't, we have to be more than correct when we are giving vaccines because we, uh, it's a very sensitive topic and we are giving vaccines to patients who are normal. So from those two ends, we do need to make sure that we are doing the best for the patient, which means we should have a very good protocol and orientation for our staff to do it right. Absolutely. And I think that, oh, go ahead, Sarah. No, I was just saying, absolutely, I agree to that. And I wanted to say, too, when I talk to patients about vaccines, I try to meet them where they're at and ask, like, what do you know? Tell me what you know about the MMR. And it gives them an opportunity to really express maybe what their fears are, or maybe they have no problem with it, because then you know how to spend your time. Do I need to spend time on this or not? And knowing where the patients and the parents are at in each of their thoughts, because as you both pointed out, there's so much information out there, and they're just trying to tread above water when it comes to all this. No, I think... I. I think meeting them is important. Meeting them is very, very important because I think if you try to overwhelm them with information, some parents are just going to tune you out and that will, you've lost them forever. So I think, I think that's such an important point, Sarah. Right. And I do have some patients who come to my clinic who are vaccine refusers or who really want to do the right thing, but do not want to get the information. I mean, hear from an expert or somebody who does uh, that. And um, I did have a patient who had a history of um, Guillain-Barr syndrome, and the mom really wanted to give her the COVID vaccine, but she was very concerned, you know, would it come back? And we haven't talked for quite a bit, and I was surprised that they went and got the vaccine a few weeks later. So, yes, it does help talking to them, meeting them where they are, and confirming uh, their fears at the same time, assuring them that things will be all right and this is the best way to do to go forward. It's such an important topic, and yet it's we have to be sensitive when it comes to understanding their thoughts, their concerns. I know, as also a parent, I you know, I'm making these decisions for my child. And so you we want to make sure we, we do no harm no matter who we are, as obviously as practitioners, but also as parents. And I think understanding that it just takes one little part or information of someone to say something to them that makes them doubt. And so it's being sensitive about their thoughts and empathy and then also being able to provide and educate so that they understand, you know, what our stance is and why it's important. Absolutely. Yes. And, that- and I think having really strong vaccine protocols in your office, because again, it takes one error that also throws off the whole system as well. They hear about that and that puts a lot of doubt in, in families' minds. So again, having very clear standing standard operating procedures in your in your office about how you prepare vaccines um you know um, how you give vaccines again deep alluded to this make we have a lot of staff turnover recently with just the nursing shortages and what can we do to make sure our staff are well prepared um in administering vaccines i think vaccines errors in our hospital system are 
the biggest error we see in pediatrics. Um, so again, we know that those things happen, but we want to make sure that we, our staff is well-trained and educated on the importance of vaccines, but also safely preparing and administering vaccines as well. And I think communication as team members too is important. So, you know, communicating this, this child or this parent is very nervous about this, communicating that, you know, about how their skills in, and giving feedback and not being afraid to do that, communicating about errors that we can prevent. And so it's, it's also, you know, we have to act as a team. And I think reminding practices that this is a team approach because we know it gets very busy and uh, mm-hmm. we want to avoid mistakes because absolutely, if something like that happens, they're like, we're never doing that vaccine again. <laughs> and, and in a way, you don't blame them. Right. And all of this ties up to infection control. You know, um, vaccines are a huge part of infection control. So because if you prevent infections to start with, you're, uh, I mean, that's the best way, right? And of course, spreading, if you stop the germs, great. If you, once they get it, stop the spread. And that's where hand washing, hand hygiene, mask, masking, cleaning the areas, etc. work. A lot of times when I talk to kids about infection control and and how it can impact them, I give this Swiss cheese analogy that maybe each thing in and of itself is not 100%, including vaccines, right? But if we put them all the pieces of Swiss cheese together, right? We get the vaccines when, you know, they're due and the appropriate time at the appropriate age, et cetera, wearing masks if we are concerned about respiratory droplets, making sure our staff is well-trained from the moment they the families walk in the door to the moment they leave and everybody they interact, right? It's all pieces that once you put together, the holes are completely gone. Right. Absolutely. Sarah, your, your parent, patients must love you and, and your null analogy. Too, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> Sometimes I think you have to just visualize it, but it's the same with our staff, right? Mm-hmm. I I try to catch them doing something right. Like I noticed when you came in that you washed your hands and I really appreciate doing that in front of the patient because they know we have to model each other and really call out when somebody's doing something right because we're all just, I mean, that's why it's called first line. We're all on the front line, you know, trying to, to do everything that we can to keep ourselves, our patients, and our coworkers safe. Exactly. Our staff is, I mean, our staff has been, you know, going through so much in the past few years. And, and like you said, appreciating everything that they are doing right. Um, and just thinking about little ways we can do to just enhance um, the care we're already giving. Well, I want to just ask if either of you, before we wrap up the podcast, um, if there's any final comments that you'd like to make. Um, Just a plug that um, infection control, it may sound like a sort of a bland topic, but um, this is, uh, you know, I think there are practical pieces you can take um, and put into your practice to help keep everyone safe. Like Sarah said, it's about ourselves, our patients, and our staff um, all working together together. to um, keep everyone healthy and it makes happy patients, happy staff and happy providers. I agree with that. And in, and infection control used to be seen as mainly a hospital-based practice. And now 
we realize that outpatient practices do need that. And also educating families and practicing that at home is also extremely important. Thank you both so much for sharing your knowledge, your experience, and such important information on a topic that we're going to continue with part two. Thanks for listening to another episode of Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. If you enjoyed this episode and think the information shared here today could benefit someone else, take a screenshot of the episode and post to your Instagram story. Make sure you tag us at Growing Up with Dr. Sarah so we can spread the word about the show and continue to grow in our mission to support as many parents and families as possible. Hey, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or would like to suggest a topic, please visit www.growingupwithdrsarah.com slash contact. Thanks again for spending time with us today. Stay tuned for a brand new episode next week as we continue to grow up together.